If you would, please turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be going through verses 1 and 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you may Bless us as we sit under your word. Father, we pray that you may help us to listen. God, we pray that you may teach us, Lord, through your divinely inspired word. This is a living and abiding word, Lord. This is not just words on a page, but these words are written not only for the early church, but they're written for the church today. So we pray that you may help us to receive the good food of your word, that we may receive it as you are speaking to us, because this is you speaking to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we are starting in the book of Philippians after taking some weeks to talk about the church and what does the church do, what is the purpose of the church. And I just, I praise the Lord because as we've been walking through that series, uh, the Lord has just kind of made it clear to me in different ways just how the Lord has been just kind of using that series to, to help us and encourage us and to grow us. And so it's my continued prayer and hope that the Lord would continue to encourage us and teach us as we now come into the book of Philippians. And as I prayed and thought about what to get into next, I was, well, I was one, I was eager to get into a, studying a particular book because it is my personal conviction that the main diet of the church should be getting into particular books and going passage by passage from one chapter to the end of the book. And topical sermons are helpful and they're necessary at times, but again, I think the main diet of the word has to come from diving into particular books. But I was eager to get into a New Testament book, and then I just thought and prayed about what, what book, uh, because there are obviously there's so many to choose from. I felt led to go into the book of Philippians for at least a couple reasons. As many of you know, if you've studied the book of Philippians, it's always known as the book of joy and encouragement. And my prayer and hope that as we continue to as we as we continue through this uh, this season that seems to be taking forever with uh, with COVID and quarantining and, and restrictions, not only that but just with the uncertainty of the times and just the things that are happening in the country and the world. My prayer and hope is that we would continue to be a people of joy that we would have this unshakable joy in Jesus Christ. And we're going to be talking about joy and where does joy come from and how to sustain joy as we go through the book of Philippians. And then also, 
this book is considered to be a book of affection as well. And we'll be talking more about affection next week. And affection, just so you know, affection isn't just between couples, or it's not just in a romantic setting, but it's definitely possible to have, and one should have affection in friendships, right, between brothers and sisters. And this book is a book of affection, and so my prayer and hope is that we would continue to be a people of affection, that we have an abounding affection towards one another and also towards those that may not be here on, on a weekly basis for whatever reason. But also, I'm praying that this will be an encouragement to those who might be joining us live stream on a regular basis and cannot meet with the church on a regular basis, and how to maintain affection with people that we don't see on a regular basis. Now, after studying the book, I think it's, uh, to me at least, it's pretty clear that I think that the Lord has a lot more in store for us, aside from joy and encouragement and affection. So today, we'll just be kind of an introductory sermon into the book of Philippians. So let's kind of get into this greetings and then go into some background, covering also some of the, the purpose of the letter and some major themes and then some kind of a, some key takeaways as we kind of get into this book. So the letter begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So two things that immediately should catch our attention in just this greeting. First is the word servant. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letters to the different churches, he normally identified himself as an apostle. With the exception of the letter of Paul to the Romans, he identifies himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, but he also as an apostle as well. Now, Philippians is one of two letters where he only identifies himself as a servant. Now, the word servant has a lot of meaning. And there's a, a, some things that he's trying to kind of uh, address to the Christians at Philippi. Let's be clear, being a servant is not something honorable, or at least people would consider it to be an honorable, or even today. I mean, nobody necessarily wants to be a a servant of anybody. I mean, if my children said that they wanted to be a servant when they grew up, I'd, I'd look at them weird. I'm like, what's wrong with you? But nobody, the servant is not necessarily an honorable title and much less in Paul's world. But you did, people, household has servants and many of those servants were servants because they owed a large amount of debt and they put themselves in servitude to pay off that debt. But for many, the goal was to get out of that servant Hood, or being in that position of servant in order to buy their freedom. And Paul here identifies himself as a servant. And part of it might be, I think, because there's some, some theological richness tied to the word servant coming back, all, going all the way back to the Old Testament, because the Old Testament, many of the leaders in the Old Testament, such as prophets and kings, were considered to be servants or as instruments of God, used by God, used for God. And I think this is how Paul intends to communicate, what he intends to communicate and identify himself as a servant instead of as an apostle. Not only that, but in the New Testament, the word servant means somebody who's been set free from sin. 
Or because a sinner, according to the scriptures, is one who is enslaved to sin, enslaved to the world, and also enslaved to the evil one who is the devil. But through the loving kindness of God, through Jesus Christ, who has come to the world and died on the cross for the sins of his people, those who place their trust and faith upon Jesus Christ are set set free from sin, from slavery to the world, from the power of the devil. And then with that newfound freedom, they and then put themselves in a position of being servants of Christ and servants of the church as well. And Jesus says in the Gospels that his yoke is easy and light. And for a Christian who is a servant of Christ, they delight in being a servant. They love being a servant. They love serving. So Paul identifying himself as a servant to these saints at Philippi. And the word saints is another word that should catch our attention. The word saint doesn't mean somebody who is full, who has a moral perfection, somebody who is sinlessly perfect, right? Kind of, and this is not the same as the Catholic understanding of saint, right? For the Catholic understanding, they kind of take the word saint and they take a, a, a particular person, they, take a, they study their life, their doctrine, their writings, somebody that they consider to be, to have a kind of a, a perfect, virtuous character, and then put, and kind of take their life through this canonization or this process that can take decades or even centuries of examining and then come to the conclusion of setting this person apart and identifying them, them that person as a saint. But the New Testament understanding of a saint is very different. The New Testament understanding of a saint is somebody who is simply belongs to Jesus Christ. Somebody who's been set apart for God. Somebody who's been set apart to be used by God. Being a saint is being identified by a relationship. And that is having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Right, that is what you are today as a Christian, as a follower, as a believer in Jesus Christ. You are considered a saint, not because you are perfect, not because you never sin, but because through Jesus Christ, you have a special relationship with God. You've been set apart for God through Jesus Christ. Now, the city of Philippi, according to archaeologists and historians, the city of, of Philippi was a city marked by the pursuit of status and honor. People wanted the prestigious titles. They were in the pursuit of those things. They wanted to be looked at honorably. They wanted to be looked at as somebody uh, to, be, to, to imitate somebody that people can look up to. And so here is Paul identifying himself as a servant calling these, uh, these, these Christians as saints, identifying them as saints. So Paul, rather than appealing to his apostolic authority, intends to invert the Philippian understanding of honor by identifying himself as a servant and also by giving honor to the leaders of the Philippian church. He addresses the overseers and the deacons or the elders and the deacons. Like he wants them to understand that, that these positions, that these positions of service are honorable to the Lord. To be considered a servant of Christ is considered to be honorable as opposed to the world's definition of what it means to have an honorable title.
And I think he appeals to them in this way also because of his deep affection for the church, and we'll get to that a little bit later. So he wants them to understand already what it means to have an honorable position. He's He's telling them, you already have it. You're a saint. You're servants of the Lord Jesus. He concludes that greeting by saying, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, let me get into some of the the background to the letter, kind of talking about how did this church come about. And we see this in Acts chapter 16. In the Macedonian call, in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And they went through the region, and this is Paul, this is Silas, this is Luke, and this is also Timothy. Man, I would have loved to be a part of that group. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Macedonia was where the city of Philippi was. It's also where the church of Thessalonians would be located and also the church of Galatians. So this would be Paul's second missionary journey. The church of Philippians would have kind of come about around A.D. 59. And so Paul and his crew are intended to go to different places, but the Spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit are intended to direct them in a different direction until Paul gets his Macedonian call, this vision, and decide to go to Macedonia. And the first stop is the city of Philippi. And then Acts chapter 16 continues in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and then the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gates to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here is Paul. They find a place of prayer. and They begin to teach, surrounded by women who are listening to their words. And one of those women was Lydia, who was a seller of purple, so it was an expensive material. So this woman was, seems like pretty wealthy. And she says that I was a worshiper of God. So she was a Gentile, but she was kind of a Jewish proselyte. She was believing in the God of the Jews, but hearing the Apostle Paul, she believes in Jesus Christ and is baptized along with her whole household. And it also seems, according to Philippians 4, chapter, two, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, that there were these, some of these other women that Paul and others were teaching here in Philippi were still here at the church in Philippians. So these were some of the some leading women. These women, Paul says, had a were laboring with him side by side in the gospel. Doesn't necessarily mean that they had these leadership titles or positions in the church, but they were at least leading women in the sense that they were helping the apostle Paul, working with him and laboring with him in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And then continuing in verse 25, I won't read the passage, but Paul and Silas end up in prison. They begin to sing hymns. Everybody hears it, but then there's a great earthquake, and then the, the foundations are, shook, are, are shaken, and then the, 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 uh, the prison doors are open. And then the jailer, supposing that the, that the guard, that the, that the prisoners came out, is about to slay himself because if one prisoner escaped, even just one, then the life of the prisoner falls on his head. And so Paul immediately calls out and said that we are still here. And then the jailer goes to Paul and he asks him, what can I do to be saved? And so Paul tells him, and he believes along with his entire household, and it tells us that he rejoiced along with, enti- with his entire household that he had believed in God. Absolutely miraculous. And so beginning with Lydia and these other women who labored in the gospel with the apostle Paul and then this jailer in the prison, we see the beginnings of the, of the, of the Philippian church. Later on, when the apostle Paul would be imprisoned in Rome, he would write to letters to the churches. And these particular letters were considered to be the prison epistles because they were written from prison. Paul's letter to the Philippians was his first letter, one of four. So it was Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. All those were, were written from prison. So then moving on to the purpose of the letter, there's several purposes, but to name a couple of kind of the major ones at least. There's concerns over disunity, and so Paul seeks to correct this, this situation that's happening in the church, particularly a disunity between Yodia and Syntyche, two women in the church, and he's asking, he's exhorting them to pursue unity. Not only that, but there's several references to unity. He says, pursuing the same mind, pursuing the same spirit or one spirit, right? Unity must be important to the church, right? Ephesians tells us that there is there is one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all, that there is one body. The New Testament tells us that the church is one body with many members, with Christ being the head. Is that we ought to be eager to maintain unity. So unity is absolutely essential for the life of the church. And so we also must be eager to maintain and hold on to the unity that we have in God through Jesus Christ by loving one another, by serving one another, by reconciling and forgiving one another. So there was concern over disunity. Another of, of Paul's purposes in the letter was to warn them against false teachers. In chapter 1, he exhorts them to live out the gospel despite their opponents. And these opponents, some conclude, are might be Judaizers, that is Christians who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but at the same time believe that you still were held to the Old Testament or the, or the laws of Moses, to, to the dietary restrictions and especially circumcision. Or it could be some who held to a divine man theology. In other words, that these individuals, these Christians believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings power to one's life and that you live out that power. And so to look at the apostle Paul, to see his suffering, to see his imprisonment, it's actually, it actually discredits the ministry of the apostle Paul and perhaps even discredits his faith in Jesus because there's no way that somebody who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ could ever suffer, which we know isn't true. I mean, Jesus himself suffered. 
So he seeks to warn them against false teachers. Another passage where you see this warning is Philippians 3, 2, where Paul has some kind of um, harsh words. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Later in verse 18 of chapter 3, again, he has a reference to enemies of the cross. These could be Jews, right, who don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. This could be Judaizers, so this could be actually Gnostic Christians who believe that you could achieve some kind of sinless perfection in this life through a special divine knowledge that God gives, which isn't true. And it's important for Paul to address these individuals or to warn them against these false teachers because what do false teachers do? False teachers bring disunity in God's church. And ultimately, false teachers bring disunity between Christians and from God. And then there are other personal concerns that we'll get to as we'll walk through the letter. So then, let's talk about some of the themes of the letter. This is the really, (laughs) to me, this is the really good stuff. What are some of the themes in the letter? One of the themes in the letter is affection. Philippians 1 verse 4 Paul says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. As I mentioned before, Paul normally in his letters identifies himself as an apostle. And it's typical in those times to, when you write a letter, to not only identify yourself, but also identify your position. And Paul would identify himself as an apostle in order to bring more gravity to what he's written. He wants us to pay attention, pay attention to what I have written, follow it to a T. This is my exhortation, this is my encouragement, this is my correction to you. But in this case, he identifies himself not as an apostle, but as a servant. He appeals to them differently, and I think it's because he has this deep affection for the church. The church has become an incredible partner to the Apostle Paul because they've given before monetary gifts to aid him in his ministering the gospel. They sent, we'll see it later on, I talked about this before, where the Philippian church sends Epaphroditus to the Apostle Paul to, to, with like a, what we would call a care, a, a care package. Later on, Paul would seek to collect funds from other churches in order to help other churches who are in destitute. And he actually doesn't intend to ask the church in Philippians because one, they've already given before. And two, he knows that he has, that they don't have the financial means. But the Philippian church hears of it anyway. And they rally together, they pool their resources and they give anyway. All this and much more, probably other things that we don't know because Acts chapter 16 doesn't tell us all the details, but... All these things lead to Paul having this deep and abounding love and affection for this church. And the church has this love for the Apostle Paul as well. I don't know if we could ever, if we could, anybody could go up so far as to say that Paul had his favorite among all the churches that he's planted, but you could, I think you could easily argue that Philippians might have been one of his favorites, if not the favorite. So we see this theme of affection. We see also this theme of joy, which is one of the obvious ones. Philippians 4.1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. In this letter, we see that there are a few things that gives the Apostle Paul joy. One of those things is the Philippian church. 
How does the church in Philippians give the Apostle Paul joy? Well, for one, they give the Apostle great joy in their concern for the Apostle Paul. He receives so much joy to know that they are concerned for his well-being, that they care for him. Another thing that gives the Apostle Paul joy through this church is to see their progress in the faith. He is overjoyed to see them mature to growing in understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and following him. Which, by the way, these are very different than how the world might define joy and how to receive joy. The Apostle Paul receives joy from the church by his certainty that he will be released from prison for their sake. He's looking forward to it. He knows that he's going to be released. Because remember, he's writing this letter from prison. He's sorry, he's going to be released. And that his release will be for their sake. And he's looking forward to that because he knows that they're going to be encouraged by that. And another one that at face value seems perplexing, but Paul receives joy from this church through his suffering for their sake. He knows that he is suffering. He's suffering for the gospel, but at the end he knows that this is going to lead for their good. He knows that it's going to be for their sake. He knows that uh, even as he's in prison, that these Christians are encouraged by his, his defense of the gospel, his holding on to the gospel, even to the point of suffering for the gospel. It gives the Apostle Paul great joy also to see the advancement of the gospel, for the gospel to go forward, bearing fruit, saving souls from death, and bringing them into life in Jesus Christ. And also, we see in chapter 3, a chapter that I can't wait to get for, we see that what gives Paul great, great, great joy is Jesus Christ. Christ is the source of his greatest joy. Another theme we see in the letter is living according to the gospel. He says in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Living according to the gospel is one of, it's a, it's a common theme in many of his letters, but this is important to him. He wants the churches to understand what it is to be a Christian. What does it look like? What does it look like to be a Christian in the midst of a secular and pagan world? He needs the church to understand this. He still needs for us. God needs for us to understand what that means for us today. But it is up to us for us to pay close attention to what the Apostle Paul has written here in this letter to see what does it look like to be a Christian according to the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Another theme in the letter is the day of Christ. He has these references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it seems that the Apostle Paul lived with this reality, and that is that Jesus Christ is coming. And that this was inevitable. And that that determined how he lived his life. That determined his suffering. That determined his preaching of the gospel. That determined what he wrote in his letters. Another theme is suffering and persecution. Another common theme is in his letters. And we see this in his references to the opponents, to false teachers. We see this in his reference to his imprisonment in the letter. 
But he also says something pretty startling in the letter. And that is that he shares in the sufferings of Christ. We'll talk more about that when we get to it. Another common theme is Christian unity. We talked a little about that before, but pursuing one mind, one spirit. Another theme in the letter is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we see this so vividly in Philippians chapter 2. We have this presentation of Jesus Christ. It is in this particular passage in Philippians chapter 2, or rather Philippians chapter 3, or Oh, what am I thinking about? Chapter 2. Jesus coming down from heaven and taking on the, 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 the likeness of man. And it's from that passage, that particular section where the church gets its, its understanding. It's one of the passages, but it's one of the most important passages from which we can understand the dual nature of of the person of Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus is 100% God, that he didn't give up any of his divinity. Not, he didn't go, he didn't take his divinity from 100% to 90 or to 80 or to 50 or to 10%, but he was fully divine. And at the same time, he added to himself humanity. He came down to the earth, died on the cross, and then rose from the, from the grave and was exalted. Another theme is honor. We see that from the very beginning in Paul's greeting to the church. We see this in Christ, the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And also, I think we see this in the references to the day of Christ. The coming of Christ is a, time, is a day of great honor for the Christian. Right, because we, as Christians, right, we don't pursue the honorable titles for the pursuit of honor. We're not looking to those things. We're not putting all our baskets in the pursuit of honor. But Jesus Christ has saved us, forgiven us, made us children of God, and we become servants of the Lord. And at the end, when Jesus Christ returns... It is the day when we will be showered with incredible honor, glorified, perfected, receiving praise from God who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Another theme is the mind or right thinking. Philippians 2.5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There are several references to the mind or to think or to consider or to understand. Paul seems to be very concerned with their way of thinking. Whether you realize this or not, the Christian life is very cerebral. You're required to think long and hard about the gospel, not just when you are first considering the gospel and come to saving faith in the gospel, but even long afterwards, we're still required to think long and hard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Christian life requires you to live not according to your feelings, but according to what you know. Because feelings are fickle. Feelings can even lie to you. We are required to live according to what you know. Romans chapter 12, right? Romans, where Paul presents this beautiful and profound articulation of the gospel for 
11 chapters, he gets to chapter 12. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your act of spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. The Christian life is very cerebral. Renewing your mind leads to right thinking, which then leads to right living. You cannot be an enduring Christian. You cannot be a growing and maturing, bearing fruit of the Spirit Christian if you're not a thinking Christian. Another theme in the letter is God and man's efforts. We see this so vividly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There are several references to this, this dual work of God and man. And this points us, I think, to the conclusion that I think Paul is trying to drive home, and that is that the Christian life is not a passive life. Nobody is going to coast into heaven. The Christian life is not an escalator where you just stand and you just wait for the escalator to take you to the end, but the Christian life is actually a staircase. Step by step, upward and upward and upward. It gets tiring sometimes. It gets grueling. But you continue to press forward. And you do this not because you're trying to earn anything, not because you're trying to earn the favor of God, not because you're trying to present all these good works before God and pray and hope that he finds them acceptable and lets you into his kingdom, but we do this because Christ has already made us his own. We do this because God has saved us through Jesus Christ. We do this because we've received the grace and kindness and the mercy and the forgiveness and the peace of God through Jesus Christ. And a heart that has been transformed by Jesus Christ is the heart that desires to live for God and serve others. I mean, Paul even goes on in chapter 3 to present a justification by faith alone. So it's not that he believes that work, good works saves you. So then, so the, those are some of the themes in the letter. So here are some, some quick takeaways for us as we're thinking about the letters, we're thinking about these different themes. So first, a takeaway for the church. My prayer and hope, as I mentioned before, that we may be a church full of affection, that we may abound in affection towards one another, eager to serve, eager to love one another. Not that you're not already doing those things, but that we may continue to do those things and abound all the more. Not only towards one another, but again towards those that we may not see on a regular basis. And for those who cannot, even, who cannot, for whatever reason, be here with us on a regular basis, what does it look like to show affection to the church? Or for those who have gone out from us, for Ina in the DR, or the Briggs who are ministering at, at UNH, or for Ray, or for Aaron Stevens, what does it look like for us to show affection to those who may not see 
very often at all. Right, and it doesn't require a lot of thinking. It might just be a, a letter, an email, a text message, a quick phone call just to let them know, hey, we're thinking about you and we're praying for you. Affection is that simple. Another key takeaway for the church is to live a life worthy of the gospel. That we may continue to live a life worthy of the gospel, that we may pay close attention to this letter of Paul to the Philippians and let it teach us what it looks like to live as Christians in this world. It's something that we never stop learning. So that's a key takeaway for the church, a key takeaway for the Christian. So the first was much more general. This was much more specific for you individually as a Christian. One is to be open to understand what joy is and how that joy is maintained. So as we go through this letter, we're going to be talking about joy. I don't know if you remember this, when we walked through the, the Gospel of John, but in Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for the joy of his people. Jesus cares deeply for your joy. So we should desire that joy. We should be praying for that joy. So may we pay close attention to what this joy looks like according to the letter of Paul to the Philippians. If you want to be a more joy-filled Christian, then pay close attention. Another takeaway for the Christian is to pursue the kingdom. I've said this before, I've said this so many times that maybe some of you are tired of hearing it, but I can't help but say it because I, I really like this statement from Jonathan Edwards who said that to pursuing the kingdom is not something that unbelievers do, but it is the chief business of the Christian. A Christian cannot help but pursue the kingdom. Jesus says in the gospel that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violence take it by force. I don't think that means that there are those who are forcing their way into the kingdom of heaven through their good works, but I think what Jesus is trying to get at is that those who pursue the kingdom, they pursue it vigorously. They are about pursuing the kingdom. They want to be there. They want to get there. They are climbing step after step after step. They're putting in all their effort and might. Again, not because they're trying to earn something. But even Paul himself says in the letter, I press on to make it my own. I press on to make this prize my own. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. He's possessed by Christ, and so he is possessed to work out his salvation and pursue the kingdom, and so should we. Then lastly, Considering the unbeliever, one who has not yet believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So Christian, I would encourage you maybe perhaps to read this letter with an unbeliever. It's short, it's concise, but how, or how, how would that look like? Well, you could point to the high Christology in the letter in Philippians chapter 2, pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the divine Son of God, coming to the world, taking on flesh, living a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead and exalted to heaven so that anybody, if anybody who places their faith and trust upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they are forgiven of their sins, saved from the judgment of God, 
and accepted into eternal life. You can draw out the theme of joy from the letter, asking what makes you happy, what makes you excited, what gets you out of bed, and point to why joy in Christ is much more sustainable, why joy in Christ is better than any happiness that we could ever find in this world. Or how about the theme of the day of Christ? That day is coming. The day is coming. And the Bible doesn't tell us when that day is coming, but it just tells us it is coming. The day of Christ could happen the moment we walk out of this building. We have no idea. And so it is important. And it's important, dear unbeliever, that you place your faith and trust upon Jesus Christ soon. To trust in him, to follow him, to give your life to loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to repenting of your sins and trusting your life to him so you can be spared from the judgment of God that will come on the day of Christ. So that when that day comes, the Lord will look at you and not see you, but see the righteousness of Christ in you. So then, my prayer and hope is that the Lord would bless us and keep us as we walk through this letter, that the Lord may encourage us and mature us and help us to make progress in our faith. And so I pray that this book will be an encouragement to all of us. And so, kind of going back to this theme of the day of Christ, the Lord has also commanded his church in anticipation and in preparation for the day of Christ that we do something as we wait for that day, and that is that, as we, that we come together and have communion together. So we're going to do that this morning, and I'm not prepared to do so because I don't have my, my things. Like I seem to forget this every single time. The Lord commands us to have, to have this together in anticipation for his return. And so as we take this together, right, let us not only think about the gospel, think about Christ dying for sinners, being spared from the wrath of God invited to be a part of his kingdom, giving citizenship by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, who is a guarantee of our salvation. But let us also take this together and look forward to the day of Christ, his imminent return when he will come and take up his bride for himself and bring us into his kingdom where we will all be joined together and have this banquet together. That's what we have to look forward to. And it's going to be a great day of celebration, of praise and glory, and also the honoring of one another. And so let us take this meal together as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are here this morning, and whether or not you are a member of Seacoast Community Church or not, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if, you have given, if your life is characterized by repentance, not sinless perfection, because we still sin, but if you are if your life is characterized by a confession of sin and repenting of sin, if you receive the baptism, then you are welcome to take this meal together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
But if you have yet to place your faith and trust upon Jesus Christ, then I would just simply ask that you just not take it with us. Because I think the Bible teaches us about communion and that this is a, a family meal. And until someone places their faith upon Christ, they're not yet a part of the family. But even as we take this meal together, consider the gospel. Consider what Christ has done for us and consider the day of Christ. And consider turning your life to Christ today. And if you have any questions about that or what that looks like or what does it mean to place your faith in Christ in a personal way, I'd be glad to talk with you. Just seek me and, and we can find a time to chat. So then, let me read to us and from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll take the bread and the cup and then I'll conclude with a word of prayer. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He continues, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you and we worship you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for saving us, for calling us to yourself, for giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit, for giving us the gift of salvation. And Lord, we look forward to the day of your coming when we will see you face to face when your church will be forever with you. And we do pray that you would hasten that day. And until that day comes, may we give ourselves to serving you, to serving one another, that we may exude a love and a joy that could only come through your Holy Spirit who abides in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.